John, did you bring me Batman this morning? That's Batgirl for real? Oh, okay. I mean, I guess it's Batgirl. I mean, I don't know. Yep, Peach. Has she been hanging on stage? Well, today she's going to be able to watch right here. Little Batgirl. Yeah, yeah. All right. Hey, well, today we're going to return to Jonah, and Batgirl's going to be right there for us and return to Jonah. We return to Jonah. Today we're going to be into the second chapter. Last week, if you were here, you noticed we finished the first chapter. We completed the first chapter of the book of Jonah. We are journeying with Jonah. We now enter our third week of our journey. You may recall that in our first couple of weeks, we divided the first chapter, the first leg of the journey, into two segments. We took verses 1 through 3 and focused upon Jonah's decision that he made. He made his own choice to be disobedient. We noticed how the word Lord came to Jonah and told Jonah to go to Nineveh. But Jonah decided to flee towards Tarshish. We expanded last week and covered in much more detail that Jonah then boarded a mighty large Phoenician vessel ship and then set sail to Tarshish, which is in the exact opposite direction in which the Lord had called him to go to Nineveh. As a result that he disobeyed, God intervened. He sent a mighty tempest, a mighty storm with great winds upon the sea, so much so that the ship was about to be broken. The sailors aboard began to worry, began to fear, and they prayed to their God, but then nothing happened, nothing helped. Nothing helped it seem to be at all until Jonah told the men, the sailors aboard the vessel, that he was a Hebrew running from God, and that the only thing they could really do to save themselves was to throw Jonah overboard. Well, the sailors, you may remember, was quite hesitant to throw the man overboard into the raging sea. They tried to row harder to land, but the storm was much too fierce to be able to do so. So their only alternative, they finally admitted, was to throw Jonah overboard, and they did. The sea began to cease, its mighty fierce wind and storm. God sent a great mighty fish to swallow Jonah and preserve him for three days and three nights. That ends the first chapter. So today, we're going to continue our journey with Jonah. We're going to pick up where we left off. In fact, we're going to read the very last verse, verse 17, of chapter 1 once more, and then go into chapter 2 and get more the story. The story I know we're familiar with, but today we'll find some things that will enlighten us in our journey with Jonah. So stand with me today if you're able to as we go back to the text and read further. Again, we're going to start with the last verse of chapter 1, which is verse 17, and then read the 10 verses in chapter 2. So verse 17, chapter 1, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. 
for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again, again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. In verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Oh, Father, we thank you again, Lord, for the reading of your word. And as we seldom do, Lord, we, or we often do, we pray for a blessing to be upon it. We pray, Lord, now that you'll lead, you'll guide and direct us. It's a familiar text for us, Lord. But I pray you'll give us new insight, new meaning into the text that we are very familiar with and probably have heard since childhood. So, Lord, we invite your spirit now to lead and to guide. I pray that the words that be expressed today would not be words that I would use or that I would say, but the words that you, Lord, through the Spirit, want us to hear today. We thank you, Lord, for advance for what shall happen here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there is an old saying, an old expression, and probably you've heard of it, and maybe you have even voiced it yourself. The saying is this, you made your bed and now you got to lie in it. That expression could easily be applied to Jonah. I mean, after all, everything we've already discussed, our familiarity with the text tells us we know that Jonah himself, nobody forced him in this situation. He put himself there. He chose to be disobedient to God's directive that had been issued to him. I mean, God clearly told him in chapter 1, Verse 2, to go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it. It's clear. But as we know and discussed last week, Jonah disobeys. He runs. He flees. He goes in the opposite direction. Again, you'll see the map of where we're talking about. Jonah is supposed to go to Nineveh. He's supposed to go east, 550 miles. We know we're journeying with him. We know it's going to be like going from here to Tallahassee in our walk with Jonah. It's going to take us a month to get there. But Jonah doesn't do that. He decides to get on a boat that's going to take him in the opposite direction west, almost five times the amount that he's supposed to go to Nineveh. So it's his choice, his decision, in which he completely disregards, completely disobeys the Lord's directive. So with then Jonah's blatant, obvious disregard to God's directive, doesn't he deserve what is coming to him? Doesn't the expression, he made his bed and now he has to lie in it, wouldn't that apply to him in his situation? He put himself there. His God was coming to him then. But fortunately for Jonah, 
and equally for us, God is a loving, compassionate Father who offers a second chance. In fact, we could even say that the almighty, powerful, sovereign God, loving and compassionate, not only gives us a time of second chance when we disobey like he is with Jonah, but he offers even a new beginning. Yes, when we have been disobedient, we're like Jonah. We don't like to maybe admit it, but there's times we disregard the word. There's times we disobey the Father. But it's remarkable that in that time of disobedience, it's remarkable how God can use the occasion, bring it full circle, offers a second chance, and give us a new beginning. Worsby's commentary, Warren Worsby, on Jonah, expresses this truth. He states that from an experience of rebellion and discipline, Jonah turns to an experience of repentance and dedication, and God graciously gives him a new beginning. Jonah no doubt expected to die in the waters of the sea, but when he woke up inside the fish, he realized that God had graciously spared him. Well, I like Warren Worsby, and I like his assessment here, and I think it's absolutely correct. But it brings a few items to the surface that maybe we need to expand upon. For instance, observe how him in his commentary, in his thoughts about Jonah, notice how he says that Jonah probably expected to die in the stormy, turbulent sea. Now, admittedly, as much as I like Warren Worsby, that is a bit speculative and maybe a little bit presumptive. But think about the situation in which you find yourself with Jonah. His disobedience, Jonah's disobedience could have easily resulted in death. I mean, he's thrown into the sea overboard of a ship that is about to be broken in a stormy, raging sea. It's so powerful the sailors are scared that the fact that it could be a broken ship, as it mentions in chapter 1, verse 4. Jonah himself, even in this chapter, in the midst of the prayer in verse 5, says the waters closed in to take my life. Weeds were wrapped around his head. In verse 7, he says, when I was fainting away. So he's even admitting, if you will, in this chapter, in this prayer, how God could have taken his life. But rather than tasting death, God spares him actually rescues him by providing a what must be a really, really, really large fish and preserves him, if you will. Now, isn't that truly amazing? I mean, Jonah certainly could have died in a horrific storm that we have described for comparison purposes to understand this mighty tempest as a hurricane. But even with Jonah's outright blatant rebellion, God rescued Jonah. And that observation, as Warren Worsby points out, should be noted and should be observed correctly. But there's also another item to observe from Worsby's comment to elaborate upon. Notice we go back and look at it once more, how the pastor, the scholar, states that Jonah turns from rebellion to an experience of repentance and dedication, and God graciously gives him a new beginning. Well, that second observation that we're highlighting now 
coupled with that first that God rescued Jonah from the possibility of death, giving him that second chance, brings a couple things to note. Number one is this. I am so thankful, and every one of us here today should be so thankful that God gives second chances. And the second observation is that with Jonah, he does sink literally to the bottom before he begins to truly repent. He hears God, he prays, and repentance becomes obvious in his life, in his heart, but he has to sink to the bottom before he truly repents. Let's expand upon both of these reflect upon it. Again, the first is that we should be so thankful that God gives us second chances. I mean, isn't that the case for all of us? If we truly begin to look upon our lives and examine them, I think everyone in here could give a testimony that God has given us another chance at some point in our life. I mean, for me personally, I think that God has given me multiple chances. But what if God did not give us a second chance or a third or a fourth? Because sometimes it's not just a second chance. It's multiple, a third or fourth chance that God offers to us, sometimes to even get our attention. But what if he didn't do that? What if it was more like us and he didn't want to offer anybody a second chance? If that would be the case, looking upon myself and my life, I recognize how I would still be a lost, unrepentant, unregenerate soul, thinking that just because I am a good person, I'm going to heaven. But in reality, that just sends me straight to hell and eternal torment. I'm just a good person. That's what I believed for a long time. But thank goodness, God gives us multiple chances. He offers a second, for me, a third or fourth chance because I've really finally accepted Christ, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. Now, as people, we just commented how God gives us that multiple chance, that second or third. But as people, we don't always give people a second chance. And, and look, when we do, when we do finally give someone a second chance, most of the time, not always, most of the time, Time has elapsed. A period of time has gone by before we begin to even our heart want to give someone a second or third chance. Because we know we heard the first expression about he made his big uncle lie in it. But there's another expression, another old saying we know that doesn't want to give somebody a second chance, which is fool me once, shame on you. Fool me once, fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. So I want to give anybody a second chance. But note how God gives Jonah another chance. It's getting repetitious. We know that Jonah has made the choice to rebel. He deserves whatever's coming to him. But God rescued him. Again, I'm so thankful that God gives us Second chances. But as people, we are not so quick to do that. And you know, that runs a whole gamut of different scenarios in life in which we can just have it personally, something that attacked us, someone has done something, and we just now hate them, don't want to offer them any other chances. And sometimes it could be something as 
meaningless as a restaurant. Yeah. Yesterday afternoon, it's kind of rainy. Sheila and I made our way to Evansville. Didn't have much to do at the house, so we figured we'd go to Evansville, maybe do a little shopping. It didn't last long because neither she or I like to shop. So we looked around and find, I didn't find much. But it comes to time where you know, we're in Evansville, figure we get something to eat. So there's a place, when we lived in Evansville, there's a place called Moe's. Moe's Southwestern Grill. It's a place we used to go to quite often when we lived in Evansville. And it's over by the East Side Target, in case you're wondering. But we went there multiple times when we lived in Evansville. And so Sheila commented yesterday, well, maybe we try Moe's again. She says, maybe we try Moe's again. Because we went there multiple times, and the last couple of times we went there, their rice was like hard and crunchy. It wasn't really any good. So the first time that happened, we didn't go back for a while, and then we gave them some time, we gave them a second chance, and it happened again where the rice was hard and crunchy. So now it's been a long time since I've been there. But then she mentioned about something going to Moe's, and we said, now nah, we're not ready to give them another chance. So sometimes it's just as meaningless about just maybe picking a place to eat that has maybe given us some bad service or something happened, and we don't want to give them a second chance. It sounds ridiculous, but that's what happens. And sometimes it becomes more personal, like what happened to me last Thursday afternoon. Last Thursday afternoon, it's one of those days as a bus driver you just hate because it's early release day, which means the kids are not getting out at 3 o'clock like normal. They're getting out two hours earlier at 1 o'clock. Now, you may think that's no big deal, but here's the thing. There just are less car riders on an early release day, which means if there's less car riders, there's more kids getting on that bus. I've already got too many kids on this bus. There's 72 kids on my bus, all right? You feeling me? All right? I, I need to have a little sympathy here. I'm not feeling it yet. I, I'm hearing some laughter. I'm looking for, oh, Kurt. There you go. Thank you. 72 kids. And when there's no car riders, they're all on the bus. So last Thursday afternoon, as we're making our way through all the schools in North Gibson, I get to the kindergarten through second grade last because there's 28 kids to get on there, and I want them to be on the bus last, okay? But they all get on the bus, and I'm making my way leaving the school. I'm looking, driving along. Everything's okay right now. I look up in a student mirror, and I see a kid on the left-hand side. I look at my side mirror. I'm thinking, uh-uh, I'm not seeing this. Is this really happening? He's taking his water bottle with the window down, squirting cars as they come by. I'm thinking, I ain't having this today. This is not going to happen. So I immediately stopped the bus in the middle of the road, turned on the flashers. Didn't realize until later I was holding up traffic, but I didn't care. And I look back at the dude. He's a sophomore in high school. I'm saying, did I really see you squirt water out? The window with your bottle extending your arm out? Uh, no. I mean, he's in complete denial, right? I'm thinking, I, I seen the student mirror. I see you back there. I see my side mirror, the water bottle out the window. I see this car coming. Uh, no, I got my bottle, but I'm drinking my water. Kid's in complete denial. He's done nothing wrong, right? 
So I'm getting more aggravated, more angry, frustrated. It's just the beginning of the afternoon route. So I'm thinking, do you think I can't see what's going on? I said, put the water bottle up or put up your window. I'm just drinking water. Yeah, right. So anyway, we get back on the road because he puts the water bottle up. We head our way home. So I'm, in my mind, determined I'm riding this kid up. I mean, I ain't tolerating this. And so he's going to get a ride up. He's going to be sent to the office and wherever discipline comes his way, he deserves it. So we're going along on a bus. A couple of things happen which aggravate me, but about 20, 30 minutes into the ride when this kid gets off. And he's done better since that time, right? So before he gets ready to get off, before I activate the stop arm, before he has to come up and get off, I see him coming from behind me. I hit the stop arm, and I don't open the door. I wait. I look over him, and I said, I'm going to give you a second chance. I got a video camera back to recording everything is happening. So now, like he's freaking out, getting nervous, right? So I said, I'm going to let you come clean and give you a second chance, or else I'm going to report it to the office and write you up. So now he begins to realize that maybe it's the best thing for him to do to admit it. So he says, yeah, 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 I messed up. You saw me. I, I squirted water out the window. I had my hand out there. And I said, well, that ain't going to happen anymore, is it? He said, no. The point of the story is the fact I gave him a second chance. I wasn't going to in the beginning, but I ultimately gave him a second chance. So whether it's a restaurant or a silly bus ride home as an illustration, it's not the exact same situation as Jonah, but it does reveal for us that as people, we are slow. We're hesitant to give people a second chance. But God, as a loving father, offers second chances. We see where he did so here to Jonah. When Jonah has rebelled and disobeyed, he arranged a great fish to swallow him up and to preserve him. Jonah received a second chance. A great great loving father offered his servant a second chance. So God offers second chances. But you may know the Bible well and say, wait a minute, Pastor, put on the brakes for a little while. Because God of the Old Testament, yeah, here it is the Old Testament Jonah, but I got other accounts in the Old Testament in which God was not so gracious. He was obviously not as loving because he didn't offer second chances to everyone. Like, for example, in Leviticus chapter 10 with Nadab and Abihu. In Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 1, you learn that Nadab and Abihu brought strange, unauthorized fire before the altar of the Lord. And the Lord had commanded them not to do it in a very specific way. In verse 2 of chapter 10, 10 of Leviticus, you find out that fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And then they died right then, right there, before the Lord. Where was their second chance? Or maybe you're thinking you know the Bible well, and you know in chapter 7 of Joshua, there's this character named Achan who kept for himself a portion of the gold and the silver, a beautiful Babylonian garment. In the conquest of Jericho, God had commanded Joshua and all the people to destroy everything except Rahab and her household. 
He commanded them, as you see in Joshua chapter 6, verse 19, that all silver and gold, every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. However, during the conquest, Achan, his greedy little fingers, kept some for himself. He took the cloak, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold, hid them at his house. And ultimately then, he was confronted because of his actions and received a death by stone. You know, people who are critical of God and his word and God's actions, and particularly then of his love and compassion, look upon these types of accounts and others and state that God's really just a moral monster. He's just a God of wrath and judgment. And they begin to ask, where was the grace? Where was the second chance, the grace and mercy extended to Achan or Nadab and Abihu? Where was it? Well, grace is a strange thing when we begin to think about it. I mean, grace extends to every one of us. But none of us actually ever deserve that grace. I mean, grace can be defined quite simply as God giving us something we don't deserve. And then mercy also could be defined simply as God withholding something that we do deserve. And God offers mercy and grace to each and every one of us. We could literally spend hours debating on several Old Testament accounts like the ones we've chosen, like Achan and Nadab and Abihu, and we take all of our time and then some to continue to debate about God's mercy and grace. But here's the thing I want to point out. Although we take hours to debate it, here's the thing we have to see. Because you cannot, you cannot erase the perfect expression of God's mercy and grace, which is Jesus. His perfect expression of mercy and grace that he gives to every one of us is his son. His born and only son, Jesus. It's the essence of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, which is but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he hath loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. And we just simply cannot, in 30 to 40 minutes, begin to explain every facet of God's mercy and grace that extends to all of us and rebuke those Old Testament accounts. We don't have time. But here's the thing. I know that God's mercy and grace exists. We all know it exists. How do I, how do we know that we have God's mercy and grace available for us, extended to us? Because of the fact that I, we, we are Jonah. We are Judas. We do things to a loving father in complete rebellion. We are sinners. I have sinned, we all have sinned, and disobeyed a great loving father. A father who loved us so much, he gave us his one and only son, that whosoever should believe in him would not perish of everlasting life. But in the midst of our rebellion, our sinful, wicked, evil, lustful nature, God gave each of us, me personally, a second, third, fourth chance. 
He has for all of us. The point is that God is a loving, compassionate Father who does indeed offer a second chance, His mercy and His grace. And He does so with Jonah. And getting back to the text to kind of keep on point, we know that Jonah has completely made the decision to rebel himself. We know that how he's made his bed, he should lie in it. But returning to the text, we see that Jonah then is offered that second chance, but then note further as we go back to chapter 2, because Jonah has some reaction. He's had this second chance, and he's had a reaction. And we need to examine his reaction because as he has done so, we see repentance is beginning to happen. Again, the second observation is Jonah sinks literally to the bottom before he actually truly listens to God and begins to repent. Chapter 2 reveals that truth to us. Words be commented on it, but we see it for ourselves in the 10 verses in the second chapter. So let's go back to the second chapter and see how Jonah's repentance begins to evolve. I submit to you it happens in four stages. And the very first stage we find in journey in Jonah's journey of repentance is, number one, he prayed for God's help. It's verses 1 and 2 of the second chapter. It says simply in verse 1, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He's in the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly shoal, I cried, and you heard my voice. Notice as we go back and begin to look upon the stages of repentance for Jonah and how he's praying for God's help. Notice that Jonah's prayer was born out of affliction, not affection. Out of affliction, not affection. Which means he cried out to God because he was in danger. Not because he delighted in the Lord. wasn't because of affection, but rather because of affliction placed upon him. Have we been there ourselves with Jonah? I mean, yeah, we're journeying with Jonah, but we don't even have to be on the journey because we've been there ourselves. Where we have ourselves at times began to pray when we're seizing the pain and suffering and trouble and despair. And perhaps that moment of prayer, honestly, is more intense than the prayer that we would offer of affection to the Father or of thanksgiving. I mean, yeah, we should always pray during the good and during the bad. Paul writes about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, about how we should pray always continually and pray through all things, good or bad. But honestly, when we begin to evaluate our prayer, there's a greater tendency to pray during a time of affliction, when we're in trouble. So for that, then, I think about it, I think, well, even for myself, it's doubtful that, that myself or any other believer ever truly prays with a pure and holy motive. I mean, we're selfish people. We don't like to admit that, but we're truly selfish people in our lives that happens the same in our prayer time. And we know we should pray with a grateful heart. We know we should have a spirit of thanksgiving. And we know we should pray according to his will. 
But in all honesty, as we begin to evaluate, at times at least, our prayer life, we find that our desires and God's directions are sometimes a conflict. And that we might pray more often in that time of trouble than the time of affection and thanksgiving. As we review the story of Jonah, as we're doing, we find that maybe that's the case for Jonah. I mean, God ultimately got his attention. Jonah is beginning to sink and hit bottom in a wet and a great fish. And it's his attitude that kind of placed him in the position himself. But ultimately, he turned to God in a prayer of affliction and accepted God's way. He prayed for God in a season of affliction. But at least Jonah prayed, right? At least he could continue to sink and not do nothing. At least maybe give him some credit and that he began to pray a season where he's in trouble. But at least we recognize his first stage of repentance and that he prayed for God's help. He knew where to find the help and he pursued God to help. That's his first stage, if you will, of repentance. And there's a second stage of Jonah's repentance. The fact that he accepted God's discipline. After Jonah himself had been rebellious, disobeyed, disregarded the directive, and after we ourselves have been rebellious, we must be ready to face the consequence and the discipline that follows. We don't ever get excited about it, but we must face the consequence of disobeying the Father. I don't know how many remember, or some in this room probably do, the old show Beretta. Remember the old show Beretta? It had a theme song at the very beginning. I think Robert Blake played the star of Beretta in that particular show. But the theme show, but the theme to the beginning of the show had a, a line that says, don't do the crimes, you can't pay the time. And that's how I think about Jonah and all of us in our season of rebellion and the fact that we are about to receive some discipline. We rebel, we flee, we run, but don't do so if you're not willing to accept the discipline. In Jonah's case, he's being disciplined and he begins to realize it in verse 3. It's kind of hidden, but it's there. In verse 3, he says, for you, for you cast me. He's speaking to God. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Notice, if you will, how Jonah recognizes who truly cast him into the sea. It was not the sailors. The sailors may have been the one that threw him overboard, but God got control of the situation. Jonah himself says it's not the sailors. It's you, God, that threw me into the raging sea. To the heart of the deep. You know, when Jonah says these words in verse 3, he was acknowledging that God was disciplining him and that he deserved it. The point being here is that when we begin to rebel, when we begin to disobey, we also deserve the discipline to follow. And we're not going to be excited about it. No one's ever excited about discipline. None of my children ever liked the discipline that Sheila and I gave to them. No children do. But it's always discipline because we love them. And the same happens with God. 
in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12. It says, For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as the Father, the Son, in whom he delights. The author of Hebrews says something similar in chapter 12, verse 6. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. We don't get excited about it, don't want to receive it. But the Lord will discipline those he loves. So Jonah, in his four stages of repentance, that worst points that we're acknowledging, he does begin to pray for God's help. He accepted God's discipline. And then thirdly, in the four stages, he trusted God's promises. Look at with me in verse 5 and verse 6. He says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life in the pit, O Lord my God. We go back to look at verse 5 and verse 6. Because as we begin to fully examine Jonah in his life, and all the things we've already read through chapter 1, you begin to realize that Jonah was only going one direction. He was going down. I mean, think about it. He'd been going in that direction since the very first minute or hour that he chose to rebel against God's plan that God had for him in his life. God called him to Nineveh to go preach to the city. But he went down to Joppa. He also went down inside the ship. He was now going down to the bottoms of the mountains in verse 6. And at some point, the great fish met him when he went down into the belly of the fish. So Jonah's direction he's going ever since he began to rebel is down. The point is this. When you turn your back on God, the only direction you can go is down. It's what's happening with Jonah. He chose it to rebel. And as all that has happened, he continues to go down and down and down. And now he's in the pit. He's in the belly of the fish. And when we're in the pit, like we are with Jonah, we must begin to learn there's only one person we can truly turn to, one person we can turn to help, and one person we can truly trust. And that is God. God and God alone can get us out of the pit. We put ourselves there, but God can get us out of it. And we have to trust him. The third stage for Jonah's repentance is he trusted in God. The very first song that we sang this morning was, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. Do you remember it? We're not going to re-sing it, but there's some great lines within the song. It's a classic from many years ago, but it's, message rings true every time the song is sang it says for we take him at his word we rest upon his promise when those things happen we know that we can trust him when we take him at his word and we rest upon his promise we know we know that we can trust him and that is now what's happening with jonah in his predicament he needs help he prays to god verse 7 he states when his life was fainting away, he remembered. At that moment, he remembered where his strength comes from. It comes from the Lord. 
and they begin to fully trust once more. Jonah, despite his rebellion, I mean, Jonah placed himself in the pit, but he knew when he landed there, he could turn to God and he could trust God that God would give him a second chance. So in Jonah's repentance journey of repentance, there's one more step. And the step then finally is that he yielded to God's will. His final step is that he yields to God's will. The key verse might be verse 9, where Jonah says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah turns to a heart of repentance rather than that of rebellion. He is ready to sacrifice. He is ready to accept God's will. He's had his own will in mind all the whole time. From the first time God gave him directive, he had his mind and his heart what he was going to do. It went completely against God's will. But now he's ready to commit. Now he's ready to surrender, ready to sacrifice, and accept God's will. It's four stages of repentance journey for Jonah. Yet he received the second chance. He's been rescued. He's been delivered. And it only comes about as he changes his heart from one rebellion to one of repentance and dedication. But notice how it happened when he reached bottom. But when he reached the bottom, rather than giving up and giving in, he turned to the only one who could help him in the predicament in his fix as he's in the fish, in the pit. As we recognize what's happened to Jonah, we ask ourselves, are we the same? Where are you? We're talking about how we're journeying alone with Jonah. But we don't have to be on a journey with Jonah to put ourselves in a pit. We can do it quite easily ourselves. We all have been there. And maybe some of us are there right now in the pit. Maybe we need to realize and look upon what's happening to Jonah and find that we may need some similar actions. Maybe we need to recognize where help is available and turn to that help now. We must turn to God, give him our life, and fully surrender. Maybe it's time for one of us here today to fully submit fully surrender, fully sacrifice to him. We placed ourselves there, and he can help us get it out. He is the only one that can help us with the predicament in which we have placed ourselves. So maybe right now you're needing some repentance and dedication. Jonah has revealed four stages. He prayed for God's help. He accepted God's discipline. He trusted God's promise and the yield to God's will. I'm saying today, all of us must do the same. We may be in one of these stages, but recognize where we are and get into repentance. Make the sacrifice and surrender. Position yourself today to pray, to accept, to trust, and to yield. Father, 
We thank you, Lord, for this message as we continue our journey with Jonah and how it begins to reveal for us, Lord, some things that we need to recognize happens in our life as well as his because we are, Lord, at times disobedient. We are at times rebellious. And we do, Lord, we're doing that on our own free will. So let us today recognize that when we do, we put ourselves in a situation where, honestly, we're in a predicament, but we need your help. So I pray today, Lord, for all of us, maybe even people who are listening later, to recognize how we must enter into a time of repentance, to turn away from what may have placed us in the pit, and now find ourselves out. And the only way we can find ourselves out is with your help. So today, Lord, right now we pray for your help. We pray, Lord, you'll be with us and help us. Help us, Lord, today. Come out of that pit of misery. Lord, let this not be a prayer of despair. Let this also be a prayer of affection because we love you. We know, Lord, every blessing itself comes directly from you. So, Lord, as we pray for one another to help us in a situation we may have given ourselves, we also pray, Lord, to thank you because you're a great, mighty, awesome, loving God that offers another chance. Let's be gracious for that here today. Let's be thankful, Lord, that you offer us that. Let's be just eternally grateful that you offer that mercy and grace through your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.